you ready to go to school? This is Sunday school. And today we're going to put the emphasis on the school part. I'm really excited about this lesson. I send these lessons out and I get various responses. And one of the responses I've had the last few weeks from a very dear friend of mine is, I guess this lesson's okay, but there's really nothing in here I didn't already know. And uh, that's not Dale Hearn. I always pick on Dale. That's someone else who sent me that email. And he was a lot more diplomatic than I was when I just told you what he'd been saying. So I decided, okay, that's fine. We're going to get one out there today. And, and this time he did not email me with that. This is one that's, that's um, uh, very, very interesting. If you were in seminary right now and you were in a, a, a top-notch seminary in, in the scholastic world, I don't mean just a, a top-notch Baptist seminary or a top-notch evangelical seminary. I mean, if you were in seminary at one of, one of the, the pagan institutions even, um, you, you could be in any seminary in the world. This would be suitable for your doctoral dissertation. This is, is very new, cutting-edge theology that we're going to talk about today. And we've got some teachers in here. I see Mrs. Leone, a teacher, Dr. Bob's mother. You taught for, Bob said, long time. And um, 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 who else in here has taught? Okay, how many of you have ever taught English? Okay. I need your help today. <laughs> Hang with me on this one. I'm not going to give the introduction that's in the written lesson because uh, I got an email from someone saying, oh, I really am glad you're using that again. I really liked it in church history. So evidently I've used it before. So instead I stole some slides from Dr. Bob's presentation he did recently and I want to throw them up there. I want to ask you if you can see the profile. Can you all make out that profile? Can you? Do you see the word? Liar. Can you make that out? L-I-A-R? Just from that profile? That's, there's some ambiguity in that picture. You can see two things, right? All right, how about this? Do you see the man playing the saxophone? Can you see the face of the woman? You got the face of the woman? They're both in there, aren't they? Did you say it's not a very nice face? That was Becky. <laughs> no, I'm joking. That's not Becky. She has blonde hair. She's just on the left half. So, the face of the woman, the man playing a saxophone. Um, it's ambiguity. Both are in there. Well, we're going to talk about a phrase Paul uses today. In Paul's writing, six verses of scripture seven times he uses the phrase he uses it twice in one of the galatians passage and it's one that has the theologians all abuzz for the last 40 years let me show you the phrases three times paul will talk about the faith of jesus christ okay he'll use another time just faith of jesus and then twice he'll talk about the faith of Christ. And finally, he has the faith of the Son of God. Those seven references 
have created quite a stir among scholars because they're trying to figure out theologically what it is Paul is saying. Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, it's pretty obvious to me. But it's not. And I want to show you why. See, for over 400 years, ever since Martin Luther and the Reformation, scholars, and and, and the Roman Catholics aren't as much into this because they've got a a different conception of faith in some ways than the the evangelical and Protestant movements. But, But within the Protestant movement, at least, since Martin Luther, people have always interpreted the faith of Jesus Christ to talk about the faith that we have of Jesus Christ, our faith, our trust in Jesus. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. See, faith of Christ, and I'll just reduce it down to that, it can mean a couple of different things. There's ambiguity. There's the man playing the saxophone and the the lady's face. Here's the issue. Does it mean faith that we have in Jesus Christ, our faith of Jesus Christ, the faith we have of him, or does it mean Christ's faith, the faith that Jesus had, the faith of Christ. You see the difference? Does it mean the faith that Jesus had, or does it mean the faith we have in Jesus? And since Martin Luther translated it into German with the idea of the faith we have in Jesus... Basically, that's been the scholastic view until about 40 years or so ago. And things have advanced now, and it's really interesting, with a couple of significant examples or exceptions. In the United States, the current theological thought is that it's actually the faith Jesus Christ has. It's Christ's faith should be the translation. If you go across the ocean to Europe and to Britain... Most scholars in those areas think it's the old Lutheran idea of the faith in Jesus. And so we're going to look at that debate today, and you're going to get to make your pick. And we're going to look at our Bibles, and we're going to learn how some of the Bible translations have made your choice for you and no longer let you choose. So let's fasten our seatbelt and see what the debate's about. Now, you've got to have some tools here. How many of you have taken at least one year of Greek? Okay. Y'all can just consider this a refresher. The rest of you, you're about to get a little Greek, okay? So let's get ourselves Greeked up. Get your hummus. Yeah? Dr. Bob, you want to do the little... Okay, here's our Greek lesson. In English, we use word order to help us understand sentences. Okay, in English, we use word order. You put the words in the right order, we understand the sentence. In Greek, word order isn't used to help you understand the sentence. Word order is used for emphasizing certain words or ideas. In Greek, if you want to understand the sentence, they put little endings on each noun or each verb to help you understand where they plug in. It's the same as Latin. If you took Latin, my grandmother's here. She, she took Latin, still quotes 
Latin occasionally. But, but if it's the same idea. It, you change the ending on the word to let you know where that word fits into a sentence. So let's use an example here. If we want to talk about something eating something, all right, the cow and the cabbage. In English, it's a matter of putting the words in the right order. So in English, we would want to say the cow ate the cabbage. That means the cow's doing the eating. If we change the word order and put the cabbage ate the cow, you get a whole different picture. Okay? So you got to, you, in English, that word order is very important, right? Okay, in Greek, it doesn't matter. In English, we use the word order. In Greek, ah, we add and change the endings. It's like there's a, there's a sign on each noun. I don't have it. This would have been a better way to show it if I had made a sign. There's a sign that might say, I am the subject. And the noun wears that sign that says, I am the subject. And it doesn't matter where you put the noun in the sentence. The noun wears a sign. I am the subject. And so when you translate it, you put it first in English, so it's the subject. The cow ate the cabbage. It's the cow that's the subject in that sentence. Okay. Now, in Greek, then, you have these little signs. And so if English, the cow ate the cabbage, in Greek, here's what we have. You have cow wearing a sign that says, I'm the subject. In Greek, you have cabbage, and it wears a whole different sign. And its sign here, this is the Greek sign. Its sign says, I'm the direct object. So it doesn't matter where you put it in the sentence. In the Greek, you can say, the cow ate the cabbage, like we do in English, as long as they're wearing their signs. But in Greek, you could also say, the cabbage ate the cow, and still mean that the cow ate the cabbage, as long as they're wearing the right signs. It just, the reason they put the word first is to give it extra significance. So that you know, we're really wanting you to know it was a cabbage that the cow ate. So they put cabbage first. It doesn't matter what order they put them in. You could just draw them out of a hat, almost. As long as they're wearing their signs that tell you where they belong in the sentence and what they do. That's one reason learning Greek is a headache. You have to learn all of these stinking signs. Because they change based on whether the, the, the noun is masculine or whether it's feminine or whether it's singular or whether it's plural. They got signs. Their signs have signs. Signs, signs, everywhere the signs. Um, so that's, that's, that's what we have. In, in so Now, among the signs, in, let's talk about nouns for a minute. Okay, y'all hang on. This is really going to be useful. Nouns can be the subject of the sentence, like the cow ate the cabbage. Cow is a noun. It can be the subject. Cabbage, it can be the direct object. But nouns do more. They can do more than simply be the, the subject or the direct object. Sometimes nouns can modify other nouns and help you know about other nouns. Let me give you some examples. This, by the way, is... is all right. 
what's called the genitive ending, genitive case form. We'll call it the genitive sign. It's a sign that the scholars say this calls out for being a genitive. Genitive. It's a goofy sounding name for a sign. But when you have a genitive in the Greek, that means that this is a noun that's going to help limit another noun. Let me explain what I mean. In English, we could have a noun university. But university could apply to a lot of different places, couldn't it? Sam Houston State University. University of Texas. University of Oklahoma. University of Iowa. University is just a noun. If we want to limit that noun and talk about not just the noun university, but a little, a smaller group of a university, a limit, then we limit it with, in English, the word of. Or we might want to limit it with the word from, the university from Texas. It's different than the university of Texas, but it narrows it down some. You see how we can limit, take that noun Texas and limit university? Does this make some sense? Keep working with me. We're almost there. If you're hanging on this far, you've done the hard part. All right? Now, in Greek, if they wanted to say the university of Texas, they would put Texas with a genitive sign on. Say, I'm a genitive. I am limiting the noun in front of me. I'm telling you something about that noun in front of me. And so Greek, um, whoops, thought I had a better one here. Greek doesn't have the word of. Doesn't have really the word from that much. If, if you want to know if something's of or from, you put it in the genitive. And we just add the of when we're translating. We know this noun limits that noun, so we just add of, the university of Texas. Because Texas is wearing that genitive sign that means I'm limiting the noun. All right, now, sometimes that's great, but sometimes the Greek is ambiguous. Sometimes it's, it's kind of like, well, I don't know which, I don't know, I'm not quite sure how this is limiting the noun. Could go different ways. Could go left, could go right, could be a guy playing a saxophone, could be a woman. So here's, here's an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Now, the love of Christ. Christ is in the genitive. It's wearing that sign. I'm limiting the noun. I'm telling you what kind of love. It's the love of Christ. But my question to you is, does that mean it's the love we have of Christ? Or it's Christ's love for us? Scholars would say, is it an objective genitive or a subjective genitive? No, they don't have an apostrophe S in Greek. So th there is a genitive of possession. This is what the genitive case does. She said, is there a possessive form like an apostrophe? No. So you've got the love of Christ controls us of. 
Now, the of word's not in the Greek. It's just Christ is in the genitive. So it's the love of Christ. Now, does Paul mean our love of Christ, we love Christ, and that controls us? Or does he mean Christ's love for us, the love Christ has? Do you see how that could be either way? Okay, almost categorically on this, scholars agree that it's Christ's love for us, Paul means. I mean, I could, if you're preaching out of the King James, it just says the love of Christ controls us. I'll bet you money we could find preachers who've stood up there and said, this means that if you love Christ enough, you change how you behave. It's your love for Christ that determines whether or not you live right. But that's not what Paul meant. I'm not saying our love for Christ doesn't do that. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad theology. I am saying that ain't what this verse is saying. This verse is saying Christ's love for us controls us. Or how about this passage? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul's not asking what's going to separate us from the love we have of Christ. Because there's a lot. I'd love to tell you, on my own, I'm so strictly and fiercely devoted to my God, nothing could ever separate me from my love for him. But on my own, that pompous boast is hollow. But I can tell you without reservation that there's nothing that will ever separate me from the love Christ has for me. And that's what Paul means when he says love of Christ. He's talking about Christ's love for us. And so the New International Version, it jerks away your option of misunderstanding that and translates it. Christ's, apostrophe S, love compels us. So you don't even have the choice. No preacher's going to mispreach that one out of the NIV. All right, you with me? Now, with all of that as background, let's look at what Paul says with faith of Christ. Does Paul mean the faith we have of Christ, our faith of Christ, our belief in Christ... Our, remember our word faith, the Greek word faith doesn't just mean a mental belief. It means a trust, a faithfulness. Does, is Paul talking about our trust of Jesus, our faithfulness to Jesus? Is that his reference? Or does he mean Christ's faith and Christ's faithfulness? That's the issue. Now, how do scholars decide? I mean, somebody's making big bucks for translating this because they pay Greek scholars like out the wazoo. That's a joke. Um, these guys don't get paid diddly squat. But there are some really smart people who love God and who work really hard to produce good translations. And there are committees that work on most translations. It's not one person. It's not one denomination. It's a broad, diverse group that really come together and really try hard to do it. And so, how do they do this? How do they decide? How do they make that decision sometimes to jerk away from the preacher or the student the decision by doing it themselves? The NIV, for Christ's love compels us. Before they do that, remove from you that... Because you read the love of Christ compels us, 
you can sit there and say, well, that could be two different things. So how and when do the scholars take that decision away? Faith of Christ. Does Paul mean faith in Christ or Christ's faith? Here's the checklist that they do. First of all, they study the grammar really hard to see if the grammar can, can give us a clue. They dissect not only the sentence, but they go and they look at all the other uses, for example, Paul would have. In deciding the, the love of Christ controls us, they go look at every time Paul uses love of Christ. What shall separate us from the love of Christ out of Romans? All of the passages. And they try to figure out grammatically, does Paul do certain things certain ways when he means a certain thing? Uh, the next thing they do is they'll look at the immediate context of the scripture. Because you can look at the immediate context. If I told you I went to a university of Texas and you know I went to Texas Tech University. Then you'd know when I said a university of Texas, I wasn't talking about the university of Texas at Austin. I was just meaning I went to a university of the, the system in Texas somewhere. Because the context of knowing me and knowing what I'm talking about would tell you. So they look at the grammar and then they look at the context and then they do theology. Because sometimes one of them makes good theology and the other one doesn't. So you always go for the good theology, right? Okay, I hope I haven't lost everybody. Some of you are still there. Grammar doesn't tell you on this. Oh, there are doctoral dissertations written both ways. And as a lawyer, a trial lawyer particularly, I get a real thrill out of reading them. Because I read the ones that say, well, there's now no doubt because I've proven it. It's this. And then six months later, someone else writes one and says, well, now there's no doubt because I've proven it. He's wrong. And it's this. And then someone six months later will rewrite and say, no, now I've proven it grammatically. I think this is pretty much the last chapter on this. Change all your translations. It's this. And then six months later, someone will write and say, boy, can you believe that guy? He was so wrong. I've reanalyzed it. Now it's that. And they just bounce back and forth like ping pong balls. The grammar really is not definitive. It doesn't point. It might give a leaning one way. But I don't think it's such that all the scholars are bowing down at the feet of it saying, okay, now we see clearly. So you don't have to know any more Greek grammar because we're done. The grammar doesn't answer it. Context doesn't answer it either. It's real interesting. Some of these passages, Paul will talk about the, the, the Romans passage, Romans 3. Um, let's see. 3.22. This is a good example. Look at this. Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, I have an English standard version up here. And they made the decision for you. If you've got a King James or a Young's Literal Translation or some of the others, you'll see it says... The righteousness of God through faith of Jesus Christ. That's of. That's a genitive. For all who believe. Now some people look at that contextually and they say, well, since Paul says the faith of Jesus for all 
who believe, the word believe is just the verb form of faith, for all who have faith, he must mean the faith in Jesus. Because what else could everybody have for all who have the faith? And then other scholars look at it and say, no, 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 the context means the exact opposite. It's redundant for Paul to say the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who have faith in Jesus. So that he says the righteousness of God through faith of Jesus must mean the righteousness of God through Jesus's faith to everyone who has faith. Context. They come down on both sides in context. You don't get a good answer. So what are you left with? Pauline theology. Right here, right now. Cutting edge. Because that's what it boils down to. Theologically. Which one do you want to buy? Which one fits? Because you can justify either interpretation or both. With the grammar and the context. So... With that, let's talk about Paul's theology on the faith of Christ and see what he says. We'll start with that same passage I showed you out of Young's literal translation. And the righteousness of God is through the faith of Jesus Christ to all. Through the faith of Jesus Christ. Does he mean the faith we have of Jesus or Jesus' faith to all and upon all those believing? There is no difference. Here are the possibilities. Faith in Jesus, Christ's faith, or Christ's faithfulness. Because the word can be interpreted that way as well. Let's look at it this way. Faith of Christ. Could Paul mean the faith that we as believers have in Jesus? Or did he mean the faith or the trust that Christ had in God? When you think about being saved by that faith, the faith Jesus had in God, or could he mean the faith that Christ, faithfulness that Christ had, not only to God, but to us? That Christ was faithful to us. He kept his word. He kept his promise. He went through the ordeal. He did it all. He was faithful, and through his faithfulness, we have salvation. Those are the three possibilities. Let's look at each one theologically. First, faith in Christ. Here are the passages, other than the ones we've looked at so far. In the NIV, they take away your right. I'll tell you now, the NIV takes away your right to make this decision. I love the NIV in some ways, not in this one. I want the right to choose. Frankly, I think that they've taken it away from me wrongly. Romans 3, 26, four verses after what we read. Paul says, he did it, God did it, to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now that makes theological sense. I agree God has justified those who have faith in Jesus. You want to be justified you want to stand right before god you want to be one of those ones david fleming was talking about who gets to heaven to find out if there are rewards you want to be one of those people then you have to have faith in jesus i think that's very true theologically i don't think in a southern baptist church anybody's really going to fuss that at least not in this one but um 
Look at the other passages. Faith in Christ, Galatians 2.16. This is the verse that has two of them. Knowing that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It says by the faith of Christ. But they, NIV made that decision for you. So we too have put our faith in Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Instead of faith of Christ. And not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one is justified. Here's the next passage, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. The NIV makes that decision. Instead of the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, or the faithfulness of Christ. Galatians 3.22, the scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ or what was given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, his faithfulness or his faith might be given to those who believe, who have faith. And finally, Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I want to be found in him. In Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through either faith in Christ or Christ's faith. A righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, do, do you see how we can say safely we're on firm theological grounds if we interpret that as faith in Christ? None of those verses leave you saying, ooh, that's heresy. To read it as faith in Jesus is very valid, and it works. But let's flip it now and read it the other way. Let's look at these passages talking about either Christ's faith, by that, we don't mean his, his uh, gee, does God exist? We, we mean Christ's trust in God. Christ, who's in the Garden of Gethsemane and prays, let this cup pass from me, had absolute perfect trust that God would do so. Is it Christ's faith? Or is it Christ's faithfulness, not only to God, but to us? A, a, a Christ who, before the creation of the world, decided he would die for it and was faithful. All of those are possible meanings. All of them are possible. So let's look at the passages and see theologically if they make sense. Romans 3.26. And I've taken this translation from Karl Barth, a German theologian. For the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present time, that God justify, that God might be just, and the justifier of him that is grounded upon the faithfulness which abides in Christ. See the difference? But isn't that theologically sound? God's going to justify the people that are grounded upon Christ's very faithfulness? On Christ the solid rock, the faithful rock, I stand. All other ground is faithless. It's sinking sand. That's theologically accurate. To say, I, God is going to justify the people that are grounded upon the faithful Christ. Look at the next passage, Galatians 2, how it changes this. This is Longnecker, an, another very good evangelical theologian's 
uh, uh, word Bible commentary uh, as he did the commentary on Galatians. And who know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but only by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's how you're justified. If Jesus Christ had not been faithful, it doesn't matter that he dies. If he were not perfect and he didn't have faith, perfect faith. If Jesus Christ had not been faithful to God, his death would not have counted for anything more than my death will. We're not justified by works of law, but only by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. We're trusting him. So we can be justified by his faith. I got a question. Do you believe that through faith you're saved? How much faith? Do you have to have perfect faith? Can God justify you on imperfect faith? Can you just have this much faith? Well, doesn't it take some perfection here? The theology behind this is Christ had perfect faith. And even the smallest amount of faith from you gets all of Christ's perfection, including his perfect faith. So when you sit there and say, oh, gee, I think I believe, I hope I believe, I've I've put my... but." Sometimes I wonder. You know, there's a theological answer here. That it's Christ's faith by which we're justified. To those who have faith. You have your faith, but it's Christ's perfect faith that's given to you. Not by observing law. No one's justified that way. Okay, let's go to the next passage, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faithfulness of the Son of God. See the new twist here? The life I'm living, I'm living by His faithfulness. He's got hold of me. When I get out in the sinful weeds, He goes out there with the weed whacker. Because he's bringing me back. When I start living out in the, the, on my own, he knocks me to my knees. So I say, help. The life I'm living, I'm living by his faithfulness. And how faithful is he? Is he going to let you go? Is he going, you know, I grew up in a church home where we didn't, Uh, There's a real thorny issue to some degree over the once saved, always saved issue. But I will tell you this. If you grew up singing out of the hymnal I grew up singing out of, we sang a song, Lord, it was a prayer, never let me outlive my love for thee. If you see I'm going to outlive it, please take me now. Uh, What was the song, Mom? Oh, faithful head now wounded. Oh, sacred head now wounded. Thank you, Charles. An incredible prayer. Lord, let me never outlive. God is faithful to us. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, NIV, yes, but by the faithfulness of the Son of God. 
You see? Okay, next. Galatians 3.22, the scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so the promise that is based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who have faith. These, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that took him to the cross. And finally, Philippians 3, 9, being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which comes from the law, but that righteousness, which comes from God through the faithfulness of Christ. I don't worry that there's not adequate atonement for my sin. He was faithful. He's done it. It's over. The, 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 the. Redemption and the perfection that I will have in heaven has been bought with a price, but it's already been bought. He was faithful. He did it. And when he was through, he said, it is finished. All right. So theologically, it all works either way, any of the three ways. So why the fuss? Why? Why? Well, first of all, because they're scholars and they have to write dissertations to get their PhDs. I'm not joking. Or they're scholars who have their PhDs and it's published or perish. And I'm still not joking. But then there are other complaints too. Um, first, the idea that if it means Christ's faith, somehow it's eating away the foundation of the church. It's undermining this idea that we're saved by faith, by grace through faith. That there's some, you know, we're eating away at the, well, no. Because those passages that say that, three of them clearly say that it's the faithfulness or the faith of Christ that is given to the people of faith. Or was exercised for the people of faith. It doesn't, it's not one or the other. It's not, oh, it must be the faithfulness of Christ. Now let's all be legalists. No. Some people think it's inappropriate to think Christ had faith. Because those people think faith just means a mental belief. Like, oh, are you saying that maybe Christ might have questioned God and so he had to have this blind faith because he wasn't really sure? No, that's not what we're talking about with faith. We're talking about trust. The Greek word translated faith in our Bibles, if you go to all Greek literature, is translated trust so much more than it ever is faith. Because that's the root of the meaning of the word. But Jesus trusted God 100%. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you. Okay. Does it make sense? The faith of Christ. You have just gone through seminary. You have graduated. I'm so proud of you. I wish I had. Yes, congratulations on completing your seminary degree. Now, next week, we will end this year with Paul's discussion and theology on Jesus as the prophesied Messiah. What's Messiah? Hebrew Messiah. What is it in Greek? Christ. Every time you read Jesus Christ or you read Christ by Paul, he's saying Messiah. 
What does he mean? Here are our points for home. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I'll grab the NIV or the English Standard Version here. God's righteousness, the righteousness that is of God. By the way, of God, God there is in the genitive. There it's talking about God's righteousness. It's not the righteousness we have of Him. It's His righteousness. God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You want the righteousness of God? There's one door. It's Jesus Christ. Not a hard door to go through. Just an humbling door. Because you trust Him. Next. The right same verse. Different translation. The righteousness of God through Jesus Christ's faith. For all who believe. By the way, if you don't get it yet, I think God in his divine wisdom, if not Paul in his pen, didn't leave an ambiguity out there to stump the church. I think both of these truths need to be embraced. The scholar who first proposed this idea decided he'd call it, Charles, a, a new genitive back in the 1930s or so. He called it the mystic genitive. Because it just mystically, it works both ways. But the righteousness of God is through Jesus Christ's faith. You don't, when, when we stand on Jesus Christ, we don't stand on a wishy-washy righteousness. We stand on the righteousness of someone who's so faithful that he planned through eternity to save us, and then he did it. And that's who holds you. The church is his body. It is his bride. And he's faithful to his bride. And finally, the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ's faithfulness for all who believe. Jesus had perfect faith. That faith is given to us who believe. And his faithfulness holds us until it's over. Make sense? Okay, this is like, it doesn't get any tougher. Thank you for your incredible patience at helping me go through this with you. This has been, you, you've got something to talk about over lunch. The written lesson goes into more detail, though admittedly it snoozes about page six. But take it with you if it helps. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray your blessings upon us as people. We love you. We adore you. You are our God. You are faithful. Your son is faithful. Your spirit is faithful. And through through your faithfulness, your love, your sacrifice, we approach you as your children in whatever measure of faith we seem to have. And we pray that you'll grow us. We pray that you'll stretch us. We pray that you'll teach us. We pray you'll put an excitement in us to study your word and, and, and to, to unfold more uh, uh, truths that are around each corner of each word. And we thank you for the chance to do it together. I thank you for each person here today and ask you to especially bless them and touch their hearts and lives and change who they are as the faithful God you are. We pray through our Savior, Jesus. Amen.